The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, we pray your blessings on these gifts that have been given. We pray, Lord, that you will take it and use these gifts to multiply uh, the ministry of this pregnancy center. We pray that you will take them and use them as they witness to uh, men and women who they encounter every single day. We pray, Lord, that you might take and multiply it so that their uh, facilities might be blessed with upkeep and, and growth. And we pray, Lord, that as we spend this time together in prayer and your word, that you might do a work in our hearts and our lives. That you might draw us closer to yourself. That you might strengthen our hearts and our minds and open our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your word this day. We praise your holy name. You've given us this wonderful nation to live in where we might be able to come here freely to worship. And we realize, Lord, that Christians are being martyred around the world for doing exactly what we're doing today. Uh, But they get to die and go to heaven for it right now. We praise you for that and we pray for them. We pray for safety for our missionaries. And we pray that you might strengthen them, especially those that are in dangerous places and and uh, encourage them in their walk with you, encourage them in their ministry. Father, lift them up as we we back here hold the ropes. We pray that you would bless those who are serving around the world. We pray that your word might go forth from this place today as we hear it, as we receive it, as we take it and proclaim it around this community so that lives might be changed for your glory and for your honor. Father, we pray for the preacher today. Forgive his sins, for they are many. And we would see Jesus and him only. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, please. My gratefulness to the boys in the band today. Today's text is probably the most well-known passage in the Gospel of John. You may think, when I say that, you may think, no, I don't think so. John 3.16 might be more well-known. But I am thinking about this. I think this might be because more lost people hear this passage than even John 3.16 Because most every funeral you go to, this passage is read. Friday a week ago, I used this passage in a funeral, uh, packed a little chapel of about 150 people, and I would estimate in that funeral service there may have been five Christians. And so... 145 non-Christians heard this passage used again. That's why I think, uh, at least in the United States, this might be the most familiar text. And my hope is, for those of you in the church here today, that um, you're not too familiar with it. That you try your best to listen to this for the very first time. Because here's a man who is less than 24 hours from being crucified on a cross. And really in the minds of those around him, when that crucifixion comes, all the claims and all the promises that he's made to them over a three-year period are washing down the drain. And in this passage, he's saying, trust me. We're in this section, chapters 13 through 17, that we call the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse because it contains the last words um, that Jesus gave his apostles, his disciples, before his 
crucifixion, his final instructions, so to speak, uh, are here in John. And you can combine the other Gospels. There are other things that were said. But this discourse in John is what we're focusing on today. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. And in our case today, also, chapter divisions can be confusing to us as well. And sometimes chapter divisions are out of place. John, writing this gospel, did not write verses and chapters. And so sometimes the divisions seem out of place. And that's probably what we have here. Pastor Greg preached, you know, the new commandment of the previous chapter, 31 through 35, uh, last week. In the middle of that section, he ha- we have these words of chapter 13, verse 33, where Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Apparently, Peter thought about this for a moment, and then in verse 36, Peter says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. That's just typical Peter, isn't it? Well, it gets more typical. Just wait. It's also typical you and me. Jesus had just given this wonderful teaching on the new commandment in verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And he calls it a new commandment. And you'd think, wouldn't you think somebody would ask him a question about that? Wouldn't you think Peter would want to talk about that theme of love, of the new commandment, and how brothers, how we, when we, we love each other, we, we show everybody who Jesus is. Isn't, isn't that wonderful? But no, that's not the case. We go back to verse 33. Lord, where are you going? Jesus sort of skims over that, um, for a little while I'm with you, uh, where I'm going you cannot come. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you. Peter doesn't even pay attention to the new commandment. Just blows right by it. This this, this just reveals to us the height of the confusion that's going on in the disciples' minds. Knowing where Jesus, this is true for you and me too, knowing where Jesus is going or having our questions answered is much more important than obedience to a command. Being curious about something Jesus said is much more important sometimes than being obedient. Love one another. And then in typical fashion, in verse 37, if you have your Bibles, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, that's Peter. Jesus sort of reminds Peter of what Paul mentions later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, by the time Paul wrote this, Peter, he got it. Took him a while, but he got it. And Jesus answered him in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we won't spend any time on that because when we get to that point, we'll spend some time on it. But Peter just doesn't really understand And this is indicative of this entire situation up to the evening before the crucifixion. Confusion and fear reign in the disciples' lives. 
I've narrowed down these first seven verses of chapter 14 to one sentence. Don't be troubled because your future is secure and I will make it happen. And that's your outline. Don't be troubled. (laughs) Number one, because your future is secure. Number two, and I will make it happen. First, don't be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Back in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And my, he does, doesn't he? Just sustain us with a word because we're weary. Let not your heart be troubled. He knew their weariness. He knew their sorrow. He knew their confusion. He says, stop. Stop being troubled. And here's the problem. The disciples always believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That's not the problem. They always believed he was the Messiah. There was no question in their minds. Jesus was the Messiah. The only problem was they had just some worldly impression of what a Messiah might be. And then their bubble begins to burst just recently in the last couple of chapters when Jesus says things like he says in in, um, chapter 12, except a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. What does he mean by that? They begin to they begin to think. And then there's Judas's betrayal that just just occurred and and uh, or at least the beginning of that process just occurred and and they're still thinking well maybe you went to the 711 just to pick up some more food for the passover that might be what but he's doing and then jesus tells peter that he's going to deny him and these these things are beginning to unfold for the disciples they're beginning to see the truth something is beginning to happen in their hearts and so jesus says let not your heart be troubled. He perceives it. He knows it. And there are reasons. They, this, these are some, but there are reasons, other reasons why um, they are to be troubled also. Remember when we started this entire upper room discourse at the beginning of chapter 13, we saw that there's some divisiveness back in Luke chapter 22. Luke's uh, dealing with the upper room as well. And the, the, the disciples are arguing with each other. They're fighting. Who's going to sit on the right hand? Who's going to sit on in the heaven, in the kingdom, in, in this earthly kingdom Jesus is going to build? Who's going who's gonna to be his right hand man? And they're, they're fighting over this when they come to this meal. And desertion and betrayal. One of the things that have taken place as John emphasizes Judas leaving, he says, it was night. And then there's separation from the Lord. We see in verse 33, in a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Oh, what's he mean by that? And then there's the denial. The scene needs to be clearly viewed, even felt, in order for you and me to, to, to grasp the impact of what Jesus is about to say to them. The disciples are greatly troubled. They're disturbed. They're agitated. They're worried. They're confused. They're distressed. They need to be um, settled down. They need to have some sense of Peace. What's going on in your life right now today? What better can settle you down and give you a sense of peace than hearing Jesus say to you, let not your heart be troubled. They need to receive some encouragement, some new hope. And on top of the disciples being troubled, guess what? Jesus is troubled. Remember at Lazarus' grave back in John chapter 11, 
Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Remember in chapter 12, when the Greeks came to Jesus, he's teaching in the temple and the Greeks come uh, to, to Jesus and, and he has this strong sense now that his time is at hand because he's not talking to Jews anymore. Now, he says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And in the very setting that we're in right now, announcing the betrayal. In verse 21 of chapter 13, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So not only are the disciples troubled, but Jesus himself is troubled. And now he tells the disciples, don't be troubled. And that Christ being troubled clearly comes from his impending death, his impending crucifixion as the sacrificial lamb. He's about to be slain on the cross as the Passover lambs are being sacrificed at the same time. He's about to be killed on that cross on behalf of sinners. And the big picture of all of this is that Jesus is troubled so that his disciples won't have to be. Jesus paid a price for you and me so that we won't have to have troubled hearts. At any time, under any circumstance, anywhere. He reminds them and us later on in chapter 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the Lord knew what it was to be troubled. He went through the same experiences of life that we go through. And now he addresses the disciples in light of the fact that he's not going to be there. And he encourages them with a note of faith. The cure for troubled hearts is believe in me. Faith while he is gone. Walter Luthi, um, a Swiss pastor in the middle of the last century, said these words. Peter and Thomas and the others were thoroughly shocked, and with good reason. They followed Jesus, burning their boats and blowing up the bridges behind them, so to speak. And now he has disclosed to them that he's about to go where they cannot follow him as yet. That means that they must part from him. The reason why they're so deeply shocked is that separation from their Lord is absolutely unthinkable to them. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These are hard words to translate. Fortunately, you're not Greek scholars, I don't think. They're hard words to translate because the word believe is two times. And in language translation, we use the word imperative and indicative and not really sure what is meant here. And there are four, four possible ways Believe in God, you'd think. That's simple enough. Believe in God, believe also in me. There are four possible ways that that could be translated. And they all say the same thing for the most part. You believe in God, you believe also in me. Or believe in God, believe also in me. Or you believe in God, believe also in me. Or believe in God, you believe also in me. Now, you thought I said all the same thing, didn't you? But there's a little difference in each one. That could be translated... Any of those ways. And since there's no punctuation, you could add a question. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. It could be that way. Or even, since the believe is used twice, believe, believe in God and also in me. 
What we have in the ESV is probably the most, uh, the best agreed upon uh, translation of this. Believe in God. Believe also in me. But here's the point. Faith in Jesus is not something additional to faith in God. You understand that? Faith in Jesus is not something additional to faith in God. It's not, faith in Jesus is not something you add on to your faith in God. It's not something that you can choose to add. No, since Jesus is the revelation of God, and we will see later, there is no other way to the Father but through Him. Faith in the Father in any meaningful sense is impossible apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There's one thing for the disciples to have faith in God that they can't see. It's one thing for them to have faith in a God that acted in the old days. It's another... Another thing for them to have faith in the Jesus who stands in front of them, especially when he's about to be betrayed by one of his followers, especially when he's about to be denied three times by the leading disciple and abandoned by the rest of them and crucified by his enemies. This call to faith in himself is a challenge for those 11 men. And so he says, do not be troubled because your future is secure. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. It's the second word of encouragement. Not just let not your heart be troubled, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they're not mansions. If you have a King James, you, you see that the Father's house... There are many mansions. Um, for some reason, that was an appealing word back in 1611 um, to use for heaven. And we're stuck with it because everybody wrote gospel songs based on the King James Version. And so we sing about those mansions in heaven, don't we? But it's not that. It's even better than that. The picture here is a, a large house of a wealthy oriental man. Large living quarters for a wealthy family. For everybody in the family. In ancient times, in the oriental world, when a son would get married... He would come back and there would be an addition added to the large, already large house. And his family would live there with the rest of the family. And then another son would go off and, and get married. And he would come back and raise his family on the addition that was added to there. While, they, while that was going on, there was, there, there was this house was being prepared for the family that was coming to live with their parents. That's the picture. I like that better in mansions. It's really the thought of it, and it, 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 it binds together the, the course of God's people in some sort of unity living together in the Father's house. You know, just a little side note, I won't even charge you for this. In the Bible, heaven is called a, um, a city. Uh, heaven is, is called a nation. Um, it's called the heavens. But my favorite is a house. It's a house. 
my father's house. And what we've got to remember, Jesus is talking about it. Jesus came from that house. He's been there. In eternity past, Jesus was in that house, and he knows it well. He knows all the holy amenities of that house. And he's going back there, and he's, back, and he's going back there, and he's going back there, and he's going to make reservations for his people. And the Father is going to grant his request. Hallelujah. And so, Jesus has the blessing of the disciples in his mind here, not the abandonment of his disciples. Whatever this world may attack us with, it's for Christ's sake. But our reservations are secure. And our arrival is expected. Nothing calms the troubled heart like an assured destination. Especially when the transportation is even provided for you. <laughs> Took me four hours to go a hundred miles this past Friday. Four hours to go a hundred miles. Let that sink in. And the only thing that kept me going was my destination ahead of me. If you've been to a funeral I've done, <clears throat> especially for a believer, you might have heard this before. My father's house, it's... This is not the only time it's been used. It's not the first time it's been used either. David says in the 23rd Psalm, if I could ever get there, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That Lord that he knew. He knew that even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. That Lord that he knew. The one who would prepare a table before him in the presence of my enemies, he will dwell in the house of that Lord forever. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, Jesus is talking about that house. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Isn't that so interesting? A thousand years before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, David had some sense that there was a house that he was going to live with God forever. Not the only time. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, says, For we know that if the tent, that he's talking about our body, this earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, what? A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. How many have groan getting out of bed this morning? For in this tent we groan, longing to, be, to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, beaten, burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but, we would be, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are home in the body, while we're home in this house, we're absent from the Lord in that house. I go and prepare a place for you. That's one of the things he's doing now. How's he preparing? He's, he's praying for believers. He's praying 
before the church. He's acting as your advocate. He's acting as our advocate. He's preparing a place. He had to leave. He had to do what he's doing so that he could send his Holy Spirit. We'll see that later in this chapter. So that he could send his Holy Spirit, the comforter, to prepare us for that house. So he's preparing that place for us, and it sent his Holy Spirit to prepare us to live in that house. There's a sense that the Lord's work is finished. His atoning work is finished. We get that sense here as we near his crucifixion. It's a sense that his atoning work is finished. But his unfinished work includes what? His high priesthood. His unfinished work includes his being our advocate. Speaking on behalf of us. His unfinished work is the teaching ministry through his Holy Spirit. If you learn anything today, believer, you learn it because the Holy Spirit teaches it to you. Not the pastor. Get that straight. He's preparing a place for us. And there are many rooms there. That just means that there's room to spare for all the redeemed in heaven. If it were not so, that makes a strong point, doesn't it? If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? There's not the slightest doubt about it. Why would I have told you if it were not so? Not the slightest doubt about him going to prepare that place. If there was doubt, then Jesus, all his teaching would have been far different from what it was. There are consequences to that, too. And if I go and prepare a place, the consequence is... I'm coming back and will take you to myself. There where I am, there you may be also. Those are great consequences for the believer. Jesus goes to heaven, his stated purpose here in this passage, then he returns. He's coming back. You can't miss the second coming here. John's accused of... John, the writer of the gospel, is accused of leaving out the second coming in his gospel. That's simply not true. It's rare in the gospel of John, but it's strong here. This is the key spot. He's coming back. He's taking his people back with him. And you notice there isn't any talk about the nature of that place that he's going to prepare. No, it's simply enough that he will be there. I'm going to take you back. I'm not going to. He didn't say I'm going to take you back to that wonderful place with all these wonderful holy amenities. No, he said I'm taking you back to be with me. The hymn writer wrote, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough that Christ knows all. And I shall be with him. Some manuscripts, by the way, say in that verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. There are some manuscripts that say where I and And this is the one um, that we get from the King James. Where I am going, you know, and the way you know. I like that. Jesus is telling them that they they know the way. You know the way. He's been showing, I've been showing you the way for three years or more. And if you just follow that way that I've been showing you for three years, that I've been teaching you, you're, you're going to come where I am because you know the way. It's just that even at this point, they didn't know that they knew. It's a great old hymn, great old poem. A lady, her first name's Anne. I can't remember her last name. The sands of time are sinking. 
It's 18 verses long, but you should read every single one. Let's stand and sing it. No, I'm I'm teasing. 18 verses long. So when you see this hymn sung, you don't sing all the verses. But one of the last one, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. And then that verse ends with, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Do not be troubled because your future is secure and I will make it happen. That's when we get to Thomas. Still confused like the rest of them. And we'll talk about him later as well in more detail. But boy, I am grateful for Thomas. Poor guy gets a he gets an addition to his name, Doubting Thomas. And that's that, you know. Hopefully we can rid that in heaven, but praise God for Thomas. Because if Thomas had not said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We might not have gotten the answer. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That is the greatest to me, the greatest of the I am statements. There's seven in the Gospel of John. We saw I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door. John 10, I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11. And then here, possibly the greatest one of all, I am the way and the truth and the life. In a couple of chapters, we'll see I am the vine, the last of the seven I am statements. But it's important for us to note, too, that way, truth, and life, that's not a three-point sermon. Those are not parallel terms. And the fact that that's how it is, it seems that I am the way is the most important thing here. You, you notice in verses, what, four, four, five, and six, you see that word? And you know the way that I am going, Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. And what that word translated means is road or path or way. Jesus is using this as a figure of speech. So we can expect the Lord's answer to have something to do with the way. And further, if you look at the end of it, the end of the verse, after saying, I'm the way, he says, no one comes to the Father. So you've got to take the way to come to the Father. That's the theme. That's the key to this entire verse. He talks about the way to the Father. So the important expression is the way. William Hendrickson says, Jesus does not merely show the way. He is himself the way. It is true that he teaches the way, he guides us in the way, has dedicated for us a new and living way, but all this is possible only because he himself is the way. He is the way. There are many, many, many people you encounter. I spent much of this week with people like this. But there are even those in the evangelical church who would say, who would agree, yeah, Jesus shows us the way. By his example, teaches us by his word. He merely shows us the way to God. But he's clearly saying, I am the way. And he emphasizes the point later, nobody comes to the Father. But through the way that I am. He's not just a good man. He's not just a 
prophet who can show us the way. There's a sense that he's our example in showing us the way, but that's not the point here. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I'll show you the way. Truth. Jesus is completely dependable. He is truth. He is the truth. His complete dependability as well as the saving truth of the gospel. He doesn't say, I am true. Other people can say that. I can say that about most of what I say today. I am true. He doesn't even say, I am truth. Ultimately, all truth is related to him. Philosophy and psychology, all true history is related to him. All truth ultimately must be tested by the truth we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. But when he says, I am the truth, he's talking about the paramount truth. The truth in the realm of salvation. He is the truth. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. And to know the truth is to know the way of salvation. And his life. Jesus is life. He's not only life. He's the source of life. Remember one of the other I am statements. I am the bread of life. He's, he's not only life, but he's the source of life. I'm the life. Not I'm the living one. Though he, he could be described as the living one. He didn't say, I am life. Others, other, we live. He's, he's not all life. He said, I am the life. The life whereby we may truly live. That's who he is. The way speaks of a connection between the Father and the Son. The truth reminds us of the complete reliability of Jesus and all that he does and all that he is. The life reminds us of how little importance we must place on this physical life. And we need to remember that in this context, faith is necessary. He says, I am the way, right before he's hung on the cross. I am the truth. When the lies of evil people are about to claim victory in 24 hours. He says, I am the life when his corpse is about ready to be placed in a tomb. R.C. Sproul clarifies the meaning of all this, and maybe it will help you. I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation and revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life. That's the most dramatic of all statements Jesus ever made. He didn't say he knew the way, the truth, and the life nor that he taught the way, the truth, and life. He didn't make himself some advocate for some newfangled religious system. He declares himself the final key to every mystery. J.C. Ryle says, What an unanswerable argument this sentence supplies against the modern notion that it does not matter what a man believes, that all religions will lead men to heaven if they are sincere, that creeds and doctrines are of no importance, that heaven is a place for all mankind, whether heathen, Mohammedan, or Muslim, or Christian, and that the fatherhood of God is enough to save all at last of all sex, kinds, and characters. In short, there are not many ways to heaven. There is only one way. And if you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. The disciples still have not come to full knowledge of Jesus and his significance. But from now on, it's going to be different from them. It's going to be very different. From now on, they will know him and have seen him. God cannot be seen in the literal sense. But to know Jesus Christ is to fully see our Heavenly Father. Merrill Tinney says, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Listen, if you have your Bible, turn to John 1. Nail this down a little bit more. Think back to the first chapter of John. We went through all of this. In chapter 1, starting at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael, shocked, I added that, answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In talking to Nathaniel, Jesus is referring to Genesis chapter 28, where we read these verses in verse 11 and 12. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had said, this is Jacob. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. I'm sure that felt good. And lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then later, right after that, God speaks to Jacob. The ladder that reached up to heaven. And then God's voice speaks to Jacob in that dream. And in that figure in Genesis chapter 28, we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he said to Nathaniel there in verse 51, John 1, 51, and he said, Truly I say to you, you will see there, a time will come. You will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending what? Not on a ladder but on the Son of Man. And as you read Genesis 28, you saw the ladder, the bottom rung is on earth, and the top of the ladder is in heaven, and the angels ascending and descending on that ladder. But the time is coming where that ladder will be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way to heaven and the only way. He's the ladder, the Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus Christ is that ladder, Jacob's ladder. That's our contact, the connection between heaven and earth is made through that ladder by illustration. Then the Lord substitutes himself 
for the latter, talking to Nathaniel. He's the latter. He's the true mediator between God and man. He's the only way to get to heaven. The only way to get to heaven, as Jesus describes, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the only way for you to get to heaven is to climb the rungs of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it in other words, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the world attacks those of us who are believers for being narrow-minded, exclusive, arrogant in our proclamation that Jesus is. There There must be other ways to God. No, there aren't. It's not something we even made up on our own. It's not something we think is a good idea because we want to have our own private club. But don't attack me, all of you out there. Don't attack me. I didn't make this up. Jesus said this. Nobody comes to the Father except by Jesus Christ. And you can come to Him today. You repent and believe in Jesus today, then He's preparing a place for you today. You might not go there today, but you might. You don't know. That's why it's important and urgent that you trust Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for yourself. In your behalf. And it's urgent that you do it this very moment. There is no reason for anyone in this room today to be troubled. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn by faith. I pray that by faith you might receive the Lord Jesus Christ today. During the singing of this hymn, I want to encourage you, if you have questions, if you um, need someone to pray with you, you have a decision you want to talk about to someone, uh, our elders will be in the back. And while we sing, you just make your way back there. They would love to talk to you, pray with you. Father, you're our way. You provided the way. You bridged the gap. For that, we're so very grateful. Thank you for the truth of your Son, the truth of your Word, for your love and care and for providing for us. Not only providing for us here on earth, you're providing for us in heaven. Thank you for preparing that place. We look forward to that destination with hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.